Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Number 68, Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood, starring, directing from a script by David Peoples. David Webb Peoples. Mm-hmm. Most uh, famous for. Uh, well, he wrote Blade Runner. Indeed. With Hampton Fancher. He also wrote 12 Monkeys. He had a two-movie year in 1992 with Unforgiven and Hero. Interesting <laughs> double whammy from Mr. Peoples. Lady Hawk as well. Love that movie. Yeah. David Webb Peoples is a real writer's writer. And by that, I mean that I don't think I've ever taken a screenwriting course. I mean, you've you've taken plenty as well, where um, David Webb Peoples wasn't mentioned as just an excellent craftsman. Yeah. Like somebody who just like really, really gets this stuff. He's not flashy. He's not sexy. But he completely understands the in and outs of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think when it came to Blade Runner, Hampton Fancher was the big conceptual Philip K. Dick guy. And Peoples was like the the fundamentals guy. Strip away all the excess. Let's just no fat. Right. Get through it. Um, And I think that is a good place to start with Unforgiven. I I wasn't, uh, I was only nine years old, 1992. So this wasn't uh, on my radar when it came out. But Best Picture winner, Eastwood wins Best Director. I assume this was sort of a runaway in 1992, given the competition. The little research that I've done through the, you know, Golden Globe yeah. and stuff for 92. Yes, it seems like this was kind of a foregone conclusion. I don't think anybody was surprised by this. It was not a controversial win at mm-hmm. all. It's not a Best Picture winner where people go back in retrospect and say like, oh, we would never do that today. I mean, this seems this movie's pretty unimpeachable. Yeah. You know, especially because it pops up on this list. I mean, it was Unforgiven, Few Good Men, Howard's End, Scent of Woman, and The Crying Game. Decent slate. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm a Scent of Woman defender myself. I, I know like a lot Scent of people aren't crazy fine. about it. Pacino, interestingly, beats Clint for Best Actor. A uh, few good men. A little, little showier role. Yes, and it, it was very much a it's time kind yeah, of yeah, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I will say that I think that this is the best performance of Clint Eastwood's career. I think that's fair. He's somebody who has never really been respected as an actor. He's much more respected. I mean, he's certainly thought of as like an iconic movie star, mm-hmm. but he's much more respected as a director than he ever was as an actor. Is that fair? I mean, the only other time he's been nominated as actor, I think, is Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, I guess he's mostly respected for being Clint Eastwood, yes. I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, doesn't really so disappear into his role. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's Clint Eastwood, and this is who he is. This is very similar to like Woody Allen being nominated for Best Actor for Annie Hall, for example, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like, yes, you are playing the ultimate version of Woody Allen and Annie Hall, and in this case, Clint is playing the ultimate Clint Eastwood character, right? He's playing the ultimate Clint Eastwood character in the ultimate modern western. 
Yes, right, one hundred percent. You know, you are a Western connoisseur. You made a Western feature-length film. How big a part does this movie play in your conception of the American Western? This okay. is top five westerns okay. for me for sure. And this honestly might be my favorite American Western okay. because I tend to go to the Italian stuff. You yeah. know, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly are probably my favorite Westerns. Maybe Fistful of Dollars sneaks in there. Sure. But then I'd say High Noon and Unforgiven sneak in to round out the top five. Okay. So in that regard, I do think this is my favorite American Western. It actually, watching it again the other day, it was so clear to me what an enormous influence this was on the Western that I made because... The scene where English Bob, where uh, Richard Harris and Gene Hackman are in the jail together. Yeah. And he's like trying to compel him to come up and take the gun. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you know, I guess you don't want it, Mr. Beauchamp. That scene was probably the biggest influence on our Western. That scene in, uh, sort of inspired me to write this sort of Russian roulette-esque sure. love triangle scene in our film. Yeah. And everything in that movie stems out from there. It was like, okay... I know I want to put these characters in this situation. Now i got to figure out how they got there and what the stakes are, right? Yeah. But really, that movie started as like a one-act scene in that jail. Awesome. And it's completely beholden to <laughs> the scene from Unforgiven. And just like the idea of you know prostitutes who are in peril and are sort of under the thumb of this um, corrupt lawman. Yeah. I mean, the, the villain in our movie, it's a consolidation of little Bill Daggett from this and the, the sheriff slash mayor mm-hmm. from uh, The Quick and the Dead, right? Yeah, yeah. Which came three years later. I guess so. Basically, combined those two great Gene Hackman villains yeah. to sort of create our the villain from our film. In other words, this movie has been an enormous creative influence on me over the years. I revisit it all the time. It's one of my favorite films. Watching it again, you realize what this movie is doing and why it's so successful because it works as just a straightaway classic, simple western. Right? You have a very clear storyline, really good characters. You understand the stakes. The showdowns are wonderful. But it also works as sort of a takedown of the Western cliches and the Western characters, right? Sure. And those two things, while they might seem like they could be at odds, make a lot of sense uh, working together uh, in this movie in particular. And, of course, you have two of our you know, titans, Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, facing off. Mm-hmm. You have these amazing character actors working on the side. I mean, Morgan Freeman, this might be one of his top two or three roles. Absolutely. Uh, Richard fucking Harris strolls in, steals the show for about 30 minutes. In the oh, he's the movie. so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And the, like you said, this movie is basically unimpeachable. The screenplay is stripped of any excess, like I said. It's just not a sour note to be found. And I, I find that to be sort of a common theme in a lot of the modern films that we're looking at on this list. The movies that are more recent, I think were probably... Critically, the, the critics are going to be harder on, okay. if that makes sense, because sure. they're, they're fresher for us, they're more rewatchable. The more time passes, the more we can forgive certain aspects of, of, of older films. When you look at something like this or Silence of the Lambs, movies that are difficult to nitpick, I think, are the ones go- that are going to stand out in terms of the modern repertoire in uh, in the top 100. And this is no exception. Like, watching this movie, like, this is just kind of a fucking perfect Western. In other words, you know, the African Queen or yes. uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid get a little more of a pass. They get because some leeway more... on maybe some of their sillier aspects or any missteps they might have taken because the sands of time have sort of <laughs> eroded uh, any of the you know the shittier parts of the movie. But like this is such a lean, clean movie. Truly, yeah, uh, yeah. There's zero fat on it. It basically does everything right. Mm-hmm. I just don't have that many criticisms of it. There's no, there's nothing I would consider like you know a good scene to go 
make a sandwich or use the bathroom. No. It kind of is just like clean. The trajectory is perfect. The pacing is perfect. Performances are all uniformly great. It's also worth noting that this movie hopped 30 places between the 1997 AFI list and the 2007 AFI list. That's... So it went from 90, 98 to 68. That's crazy. Yeah. So wow. to say that, I mean, to say that this movie has only sort of like risen in critical esteem um, is probably an understatement. I wonder if there's a couple of things to go around because this is such like the ur-Western. Like I said, it, it borrows from sort of the cliches of Westerns in general and puts them into a modern take on like the masculinity of you know, Western characters or whatever. And I wonder if it was sort of hard to make a good Western after that. Yeah, well, Eastwood hasn't tried. He hasn't, I mean, he basically said, he basically, this is my he, final... This is a mic drop for him. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> this is the final word on the Western. But even sort of commercially in American film, like, the Western hasn't been the same since this movie came out. True. Right? Yeah. I think that helps, like, the sort of esteem looking back. It's like, oh, this movie was so good that it broke the Western. (laughs) Right? Yeah, fair. Um, And and that has to be part of his legacy, right? I mean, it is the ultimate deconstruction, but it exists in this incredible pedestal where it deconstructs the Western, it deconstructs the idea of masculinity and violence. All of the quote-unquote action scenes of the movie are not particularly exciting. Like, they're very disturbing, and they're very, like, they're very much, like, sort of violence forward. There's nothing sexy or romantic about them which is very intentional yet at the same time the movie has these iconic moments that work just as well as anything you're going to find in Fistful of Dollars or High Noon or Shane like when he shows up in the saloon at the end it's like there he is yeah. like there is that, that is I mean, I mean in, in a lot of ways he's almost more iconic than John Wayne when he shows up at the end because yeah. like so it's like sucking the air out of making violence look romantic where at the same time we find this idea of vengeance and this Western angel of death yeah. to be pretty damn exciting and yeah. pretty, and it's very invigorating when he goes and gets his revenge at the end, right? It is, and but then you think about earlier, like Morgan Freeman bragging about how good a shot he is, and then he just can't do it. Like, yeah, that scene that happens where where it is like the cliche, like shooting over the rocks down yeah. into the valley, picking off your enemies one by one. But there's an impotency to it in yeah. some ways, there's yeah, a, and it just it happens in slow motion mm-hmm. that scene. Mm-hmm. Like I said, like there's so many of the cliches there but they're working against those you know it's the come out for one last job right mm-hmm. and that, that even goes further beside like that's just an action movie or a it's a cliche yeah cliche yeah there's nothing nothing else to really say about the movie <laughs> like I, I i was searching for like i was sitting down the other day and trying to come up with like salient points it's 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 it's, oh. it's so bare and so thin yeah fucking unforgiven it very much it very much feels like like you said like a mic drop like the final word without going too far down the freudian rabbit hole though well, let's do it i do find <laughs> please let's do it i mean talking about this idea of impotency or masculinity there's quite a bit of dick talk in this movie yeah (laughs) like morgan freeman talks a lot of he he keeps referring to the fact that he misses his wife and misses intimacy yeah and the fact that clint has been a widower for so many years and at one point morgan freeman even like references masturbation yeah which i think is a first (laughs) in westerns like the fact that morgan freeman's asking clint eastwood if he masturbates or not (laughs) And then Gene Hackman has a whole speech about Two Gun, uh, I can't remember his name, but it's a great Western name, Two Gun Thompson or Two Gun yeah, Johnson yeah. or whatever. You know, he, this guy who he didn't carry two guns. He had a dick that was so big it was longer than the barrels of two guns. Yeah. So 
They're very obsessed with dick measuring and with masculinity and with masturbation. And like you said, there comes a point where Morgan Freeman can't shoot, which is some sort of like impotency allegory, right? And then uh, the... And Clint Eastwood turns down a free roll. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, then there's all this prostitution and yeah, and yeah exactly. Sexual, using sexuality to pay for vengeance. And then the Schofield kid character who is basically going blind. Mm-hmm. So that has its, that brings with it its own like uh, implications. And then Clint Eastwood basically gets infected by some sort of almost demonic influenza or something, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. he he becomes infected by almost the 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 demons of his past. Mm-hmm. And he even keeps talking about the fact that he's like seen the angel of death. Yeah. So is the angel of death infiltrating him so that he can actually become his true self by the end, become the personification of the angel of death who rains down hell and brimstone into yeah. the town of Little little Whiskey. This big is a, Whiskey. Pardon me. Little Bill, Big Whiskey. <laughs> little Bill, Big Whiskey. So, this is, so you, do you think David Webb people sort of pulled a fast one on, on uh, Clint Eastwood here with this script? Do you, do you think Clint Eastwood is reading the script and directing the movie and being like, this is what this symbolizes, uh, this is about masculinity and impotency and uh, deconstructing... Uh, the Western in in cinema history, or do you think that uh, he's like, oh, this is a, this is just a perfect Western that I can go out on? Like, I can, is, is he focused on the artifice, or do you think Clint Eastwood is actually thinking deeply here? I get the impression Clint Eastwood's pretty self aware okay. about this kind of stuff, and uh, the little research I did suggests that David Peoples wrote this in the seventies, like, okay. like pre Blade Runner. Oh, interesting. And it got to Eastwood at some point in the early 80s. It was just one of these great scripts that was just bouncing around. Yeah. I think Eastwood optioned it because he's like, this is this is good. I could I I, I know I know exactly how to do this, yeah. but I'm not old enough yet. It's sort of it's very similar to the Spielberg Schindler's List thing, right? Where he's like, I know this is important. I know I'm the right guy for this job, but I can't do it yet. I'm not ready yet. Exactly. Eastwood claims to have like put this in a drawer and like waited for a decade till he knew he was ready to make it, and he knew he had made a couple more westerns, and he'd finally he'd sort of like done everything he could with when this also genre. that he was old enough. Exactly. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I think all that's important, but. To answer your question, I think I think this was people's idea about deconstructing the mythos of the West, and I think it was Eastwood being like, "Oh, I'm the guy for this job. I have this persona, and I need to sort of like hone my directorial chops and get to an age where I know I can play this character." Yeah. And then when those things finally came together and overlapped, it was just like this perfect storm. Okay. So, but I think I think we definitely need to give people's a lot of credit for the sophistication of this text. I think the strength of a Clint Eastwood film is completely contingent on the script. Oh, for now, sure. Now, I know that's not a totally revolutionary <laughs> thing to say, one could, but I think there have been good movies made from bad scripts. And there are certain directors who can just like, they can somehow pull this off even with a weak script. Yeah. I don't think Eastwood's one of those guys. When you look at his filmography. He's not he's not doing ad libs. He's not doing multiple takes. No. He's just like getting in and out. And so. what are Eastwood's best movies? You know, Unforgiven, obviously, Mystic River. Mm-hmm. I guess people really like Million Dollar Baby. I'm not crazy about that <laughs> yeah, movie, but it won Best Picture. Uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, I think is wonderful. American Sniper was this huge hit nominee for Best mm-hmm. Picture. I think they're always contingent on really strong scripts. Mm-hmm. Eastwood's not a writer. He's an actor and he's a director, so I think when he when he happens upon really really strong text, it just lifts his abilities. Whereas you get something like The Mule, which is a completely weak script, or you get something like Gran Torino, which was a hit, but it's not a very well written movie. Yeah. Or I mean, you I mean the guy's made what 37, 38? He's directed like thirty eight movies. The Mule, Gran Torino, are written by the same guy, by the way. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. They're cut from the same cloth. But I guess my point is that I think that when you present Eastwood with a really great script he has the opportunity to show us how strong he is directorially. You present him with a weak script and he flounders. Mm-hmm. I mean, so often in Eastwood's career when he makes these masterpieces, it almost feels fluky. 
right? Like, I don't mean to take anything away from the guy, but he'll make a masterpiece like Unforgiven, then he'll make like five pretty bad movies, yeah. right? And, you know, Eastwood famously, at least in his later career, is like the guy people like to work with or the studios like to work with, right? Because he comes in under budget, right. under schedule. Yep. The actors know it's going to be an eight-hour day. They're not going to be up late. They'll be home in time for dinner, <laughs> yep. blah, blah, blah. Reading behind the scenes of Unforgiven, they shot this over like four months, which I wouldn't have assumed. You know, there's not that many sets going on here. It's clear that this was a labor of love, that he did take his time with this movie. More engaged. Definitely more engaged. I mean, I think you have to look only so far as like the weather stuff in this movie, which plays a really important role. Yeah. You sort of need the that hard rain, especially at the end there. It it opens and closes with hard rain, yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. The opening scene and the closing scene. Do you think are... this movie's better than the movie Hard Rain? <laughs> Let's not get crazy okay. here. All right. Someday we'll do our uh, oeuvre about Christian Slater's career. Oh, Morgan Freeman film, interestingly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think weather is very interesting. I think the movie's relationship with weather is really interesting. There's just so many beautiful pastoral sunset shots of uh, Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood just riding through the plains where you're just like, wow, this is, this is really a film that not only understands the mythos of the West, but... Eastwood is an underrated uh, visual stylist, you know, like he just yeah. he just gets this stuff preternaturally. And then when things get bad, they get really bad. I mean, this movie, there's like, like you said, scenes of hard rain, scenes of people having, you know, Eastwood having physical breakdowns, like losing his mind at one point, getting very, very sick, feverish. Gene Hackman beating the shit out of people in the middle of a muddy street. Yeah. And this movie's very kind of elemental, right? Yes, it is. It's very... Pardon the expression, boots on the ground. Like, this movie is not afraid to get dirty. I mean, there's some pretty graphic sex scenes, and it opens with one of the more disturbing scenes of, I mean, physical abuse, sexual abuse, I mean, domestic abuse, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's a really, it's a rough opening sequence. But, I mean, it's... It never gets that violent again. It never gets that violent again, but it's kind of necessary because that's the impetus, that's the whole emotion around the movie, right? And even then, the prostitutes who are raising the money sort of embellish... It's been embellished by the, uh, what's the kid's name? Cisco Kid? The Schofield Kid. Schofield Kid. Yeah. Every time they talk about yeah. it, it gets worse. It gets, worse it gets worse, progressively right? worse, to, yeah. To sort of convince Clint Eastwood to, to do this thing. Right. It's it's a lot like in LA Confidential, every time they talk about the beating, the like racial, yeah. racially motivated beating that took place, every time somebody talks about it, it gets mm-hmm. progressively worse. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, like I said, it is still really hard. But then there are these like quiet, long, dialogue heavy scenes that work, that just crackle because of the script. I mean, there's yeah. the. Uh, was the Gene Hackman and the uh, biographer, the writer W. W. Beauchamp? Yeah, W. W. Beauchamp in the in, in the jailhouse, and it goes on for probably fifteen minutes. It's just Gene Hackman just telling stories, riffing, just riffing, talking. And you know, Gene Hackman won his Oscar for this. And it makes <sighs> He's sense. so fucking good. He's so intimidatingly good in this movie. It, it's the <laughs> it is the like platonic ideal of the supporting actor Oscar win, right? Yeah. He had already won for the French Connection by this point. He is just at this point in his career, kind of just like banging it out, just doing his thing you know journeyman actor um and but this puts him on a really interesting trajectory where he does like three more westerns after this does the firm right after this which he's also fantastic in yeah. and then eventually does crimson tide which i think he's wonderful in as well so he's really flying high in the 90s after this film <laughs> and he is just so he's born to play this role right can you imagine anybody else in the role of little bill daggett i can't and you know for a guy who is sort of tamping down the crimes of some locals local buddies and sort of keeping prostitutes from getting their money and yeah. doing, doing all these things that are are beating the shit out of people like doing all these things that are really bad 
you can't help but be kind of charmed by yes, him. Yes, like, 100%. Throughout the movie. And those are the best kind of villains, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and especially the way that he deals with uh, deals with Bob, uh, deals with Richard Harris in this movie, is just is, it's delightful, and you feel bad for being delighted by it, but that's Gene Hackman, that's why uh, he's Gene Hackman. Yeah, he watched this film, you know, you and I watched Royal Tenenbaums again over the weekend, and you just, I just miss him. I just miss him so much. Like, I mean, he's probably one of my ten favorite actors of all time. He just got to a point, sort of like Sean Connery did, where he was just like, I think I'm done. I think I've said everything I needed to say, and... I'm not passionate about this the way I used to be, and I've got plenty of money, and I guess I'm just done. But this performance, I think, will just last, you know, will endure as yeah. one of his finest creative statements. Yeah, and he, and he in particular is, is a is a singular performer. Like, yeah, you can't really imagine. He's not classically handsome like no. a like a classical leading man. Yeah, he's got just a very just a unique demeanor, and you know that's that's the sign of a great actor when you like. I can't imagine replacing him in any of his iconic roles. No. Right. Yeah. Like French Connection, Royal Tenenbaums, this movie. Like he can be as scary as anybody else when he wants to. When he really wants to, I mean, he he can shout with the best of them. Yeah. But he, like you said, he can also be incredibly funny and incredibly charming. And you need look no further than the Royal Tenenbaums, even though apparently. He wasn't crazy about that movie. Didn't really get it. Yeah, he's still really funny in it. <laughs> so so he almost just can't help but have that natural charisma. Let me just rattle off a couple of these great character names because I think this is one of the like <laughs> that was one of my favorite parts of writing a western was you got to come up with these really silly names. So you got Will Money, Little Bill Daggett, Ned Logan, Strawberry Alice, Sally Two Trees, The Schofield Kid, English Bob, W.W. Beauchamp, Silky, Quick Mike, Thirsty. <laughs> Then you got a character named Skinny. You know why Skinny's called Skinny? Why? Because he's skinny. Yeah. And you got a character called Fatty. You know why he's called Fatty? Uh, it's because he's skinny. He's overweight. So uh, <laughs> a couple of them are a little bit on the nose, but I love that Western yeah. sort of milieu where you could just call an act. I'll call a character Fatty because he's a little bit overweight, or call the bartender Skinny because he's a beanpole. That I mean, the movie it just hits. It hits every Western trope that it has to, and yet somehow it kind of like transcends all of them. It gets away with it because it's commenting all those tropes while displaying those tropes in a really well-executed fashion, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, I just love this movie so much. It, it's too low on the list for me. I think this is one of the twenty or thirty greatest American films of all time. I would bump it up even further myself, but yeah. mostly I'm just happy that it's on the list and that it still is a movie that people can't disagree with. That movie. I mean, if you're saying it is your favorite American Western, then you're definitely saying it should it needs be, to be even higher. Yeah, top twenty. Top 25. It's And that's not a revolutionary thing to say. Like, I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this is the best film Clint Eastwood has ever, will, you know, has ever made, will ever make. Yeah. That it's his best performance, that it's the best film he ever directed, that it's kind of like the final word for the American Western. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think it's, you know, superior to Shane and True Grit it's and definitely superior to High Shane Noon, <laughs> you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I yep. mean, it does feel a little weird to be talking about a movie that's so quote unquote recent mm-hmm. as being superior to all of these Western classics. Yeah. But it just, for some some reason it really really works for me yeah i i would be okay putting this 20 25 30 spots higher favorite scene favorite scene uh i'm just gonna go with you know as much as i love clint in this movie as much as i love morgan freeman i'm gonna go with the entire bob gene hackman sequence in the jail yes yeah isn't it funny that like the movie kind of takes this weird left turn and kind of goes off on this little subplot yeah and yet you never you're never distracted by it you're never wondering why we were spending so much time. Like it's yeah. it's telling you everything you need to know about this Gene Hackman character. It's telling you everything you know, and through. it just shows you how he views the assassination threats and all this stuff. Right. right? Like, yes. I think that's like the point. That's why it informs us. The movie it doesn't feel like an, a wasted turn. It's it's interesting to have a character like English Bob who is so crucial to all of this, and yet he never interacts with the protagonist of the movie. Yeah. They never meet. Right. Yeah, yeah. They see him at one point. They what when it's raining, they see the train go by, and he's leaning against the window. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, they never actually <laughs> encounter English Bob, considering he's such a... What's your favorite movie? I mean, favorite... Uh, favorite scene? Yeah. It's that, 
or it's the uh, we've all got to come in yeah. speech, you know, like that's I remember vividly. Of course, I didn't see this in the theater when it came out, but I certainly watched the Oscars that year. Mm-hmm. And that was just always the scene yeah. throughout that whole. It was just always, you know, we've all got to come in, kid. Hell of a thing to kill a man. Take away everything he's got and everything he's going to have. And just the way he watches the woman approaching on the horse from yeah, from yeah. Big Whiskey. And, and it's just it's probably the best piece of acting of Clint Eastwood's career. And then she comes and they find out that um, uh, Ned Logan has been killed. And he doesn't say anything and he doesn't even look at the bottle. He just grabs the bottle and takes a drink. (laughs) Like, he has been, he has been abstaining throughout this entire movie. They keep handing it to him. He's very, I mean, he's sitting in the... There's peer pressure going on. 100%. (laughs) Morgan Freeman keeps pressing it on him. There's a fucking shot of whiskey sitting on the table in front of him when he's like, has this horrible fever and the rain's coming down. He pushes it away and then without mentioning it, looking at it, talking about it, he just reaches over and grabs the bottle. And it's like, all right, here we go. Game on, yep. yeah. <laughs> it's, And it's just, it's the turning point, of course. Because yeah. when he finds out Ned, you know, when he finds out that they killed Ned, then like, all right, it's fucking on. And that's just, it's just a wonderful thing. Again, like it's ugly and it's violent and it's dark, but I somehow kind of get goosebumps during yep. the last scene of that movie. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. I agree with you. Um, my one demerit, the one, it's not even a bad scene, but... I kind of think the title cards at the end of the movie are a little unnecessary. The, t- the beginning and the end? Because they, they mirror each other, right? Yes. They're like bookends. I, I, I don't... It's an interesting choice. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary at all. I don't know why they decided to do that. It's very literary, isn't it? Is it trying to suggest that we're reading an old... We're experiencing an old Zane Grey <laughs> novel about the Western or something? The, the old Louis L'Amour. Exactly. I, I, don't, I don't know. Because I, I, it's written in a very intentional kind of stilted manner. It is. Yeah. It's all, all the more sort of perplexing to me because it's such a lyrical, poetic movie throughout that mm-hmm. I don't think it needs it. But I don't know. I mean, do you have any... Are there any sort of sour notes here for it you? It doesn't bother me. And I think it's an interesting bookend. Plus, it also privileges us to that incredible... A sunset shot that, like that incredible composition yeah, yeah. where he's walking to his wife's That's grave true. and it also gives us that wonderful song which um eastwood composed himself yeah so obviously he's done this many times over the course of his career but i think it's the best it's the best piece of music he's ever written for one sure. of his films it's just an absolutely i mean you, you could have that as the credits roll too like, they do yeah i mean but, but you don't you just don't need right. the explanation that's fine all right any any final thoughts before we uh Close up shop? No, I just, I always knew this was going to be a gush fest, but um, <laughs> this is just one of the ones I was most looking forward to revisiting. This movie never lets me down. I feel that people who are turned off by the subject matter or by the genre, uh, or if you're turned off by Clint Eastwood for, you know, political reasons or whatever, uh, maybe get this movie a chance. Yeah. Because I really think that it is, it's a very heavy, dark, violent film, but it does have extraordinarily resonant themes. And um, and I think it's just aged like a fine wine. Yeah, don't be turned off by what Clint Eastwood is now, whether that's, whether you don't like his movies or don't like his politics. I mean, this is definitely worth, worth checking out. And it may seem dark if you watch the trailer or read the description. And it is dark at parts, but it's not like grotesque. It's not gory. It's not overly violent. It's pretty palatable throughout. Sure. Um, and if you've never really like understood the mystique of Clint Eastwood, if he's always kind of like gone over your head, this, this might be the one that really te- yeah. teaches you why he's important. All right. Well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies, AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 68. Up next is uh, number 67, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which uh, should be fun as well. I'm looking forward to it. See you.